you got to believe that we can continue to find ways to make a difference. And in similar situations, we have found ways to make a difference. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Harold Feld, the Senior Vice President of Public Knowledge. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Harold, it's wonderful to have you here. You've been on the show many times to talk about specific policy issues. And in fact, since I have you, we are going to talk about one. But uh, I wanted to bring you on specifically to talk about something that I feel like I've learned a lot about from you. And I was recently reading and reflecting on current events, and I felt like this was a good time to talk about how change happens to the best of our knowledge. <laughs> yeah, as much as we try. You just a brief background, I think, like, obviously, you've been in, in telecom policy work, uh, I would call you a legend of it. Uh, at this point, you've been at which means you've been at it for much longer than me. <laughs> and, um, and you've had tremendous um, uh, impact. Um, but I, I, let's I mean, just briefly, maybe like, what's the 30 second like bio you'd like to share? And then I want to ask you for a slightly longer bio of, of how you've been thinking about like hope and things like that? What brings you to think about that rather than just thinking about policy specifically? There are a couple of things that I, I like to say. I've actually got a, a list of, you know, kind of Feld's rules and aphorisms that I've collected over the years, um, you know, some of which you would think would be fairly obvious, but um, some of them are, are worth repeating. Um, some in particular, I'm, I'm going to say, first, you got to decide, is this about being effective or is this about feeling good? If it's about feeling good, then it's a hobby. For me, this is my day job. So what I care about is being effective, which leads to a bunch of other rules that are kind of surprising to me that people don't understand, um, which is, first of all, advocacy is not about getting people to do the right thing for the right reason. Advocacy is about getting people to do the right thing for their reason, which means you got to understand the people who you're talking to. You got to understand the decision makers and figure out not why you think this is important, but what their objectives are, the things they care about and what you want works with that. Sometimes that's not always possible. And in fact, sometimes what you're doing is going to other people to persuade them why they should oppose a particular thing. But even there, you got to understand, like, why would these people think that repeal of net neutrality is a bad thing? Not why do I think it's a bad thing, but why do businesses that folks in Washington are going to listen to think it's a bad thing? How do I persuade members of the public, you know, for people who don't think about telecom policy and the future of the internet and, you know, kind of all these things, what's going to make them care? Right. And I think even there you say member of the public, but I think we want to think about like member of a church group, you know, member of a civic association, um, person who is already supporting a certain candidate, right? Like they each may have different reasons and, if we have an audience with them, we want to talk with them about what motivates them, not what motivates us. Exactly. The other things that are important is keep in mind, are you looking at something that is a short term change or a long term change? And if you're looking for something that's a long term change, which I think most of us who are in it you know, this long are, you got to understand all true change is culture change. 
which is you have to get people thinking in a particular way, because it's one thing to try to persuade people like, yeah, uh, okay, you know, I want this particular grant or this particular rule change or, you know, this particular federal program. Those are kind of things that you can focus in on and have, you know, how does it fit within the existing framework? But if you're trying to solve some of the bigger problems, like we want everybody to be connected, we care about concentrations of corporate power and how we would like to see corporate power more dispersed, broken up, not have the influence that it has, how we want to give everybody economic uh, uh, opportunity. These are things where you have to change the culture because I started advocacy in the late 90s and that was kind of the height of the worship of the market by Democrats as well as Republicans. When I came in, you know, and was talking about things like the New Deal and how it was important that government has a role in these things, you would be shushed by people you're not supposed to say that stuff out loud they'll think you're crazy and even those are people on your side would shush you people who agreed with you the people who agreed with you would shush you the people who didn't agree with you would laugh at you mm -hmm. so it wasn't just a, okay how do i frame things like broadband policy net neutrality which yeah we were talking about even 20 years ago in market terms and, you know, economics and, and stuff that people will respect. Uh, but also, how do I change the culture so that people actually think along the lines of, yeah, there is a thing called the public interest and government has a role uh, in uh, um, in making uh, these uh, uh, these decisions and in shaping uh, these market forces, not simply, you know, letting market forces do uh, whatever they want. And that's a long term project. And that takes a lot of investment and a long time before you see any payoff. And of course, it's never going to be just you. Um, part of the process is discovering the other people who feel the same way and who also want to change the culture so that you can be like, yeah, we're going to team up. We're going to, you know, work together. We're going to not be kind of hiding in our, our rooms and, and being ashamed to say this stuff. We're going to get it to where people agree. You know, never mind that people view this as something acceptable, but agree. And that means investing a lot of time and frankly, getting a lot of heartbreak. I tell people all the time the problem with working on something that you care passionately about and you feel is vitally important is it will break your heart consistently and repeatedly but it's worth it and it also requires this belief that yeah i am actually going to go out there and be able to change the world and it's going to be scary and it's going to hurt and right and that gets back to this isn't a hobby. This is for real. Mm -hmm. um, I want to use a specific example, I think, that I think works. And that is, uh, you know, something that both you and I care about and a lot of people are working on, which is making sure that everyone can afford Internet access. Right. That's not the only problem in broadband. But let's if we just talk about that one in particular. You know, we have had these victories, right? We have the affordable connectivity plan. We had Lifeline that kind of led into that in some ways. Um, we have more people taking it seriously. We have the Digital Equity Act. We have um, affordability as an issue in multiple programs for broadband subsidy. It's 
on the top of people's minds. And those are victories. But until multiple agencies within local governments, in my mind, are actually viewing this as something that's a part of their job, which I think is culture change, um, then we're not going to win on it because throwing money at it and having a few more people working on it is is good. But like ultimately, this is a problem that is so enmeshed with poverty that we can't have like one group of people solving this problem. It has to be a, a multi-front effort, which is the culture change, I think, that you mentioned. Right. And, you know, that this is a great example of a problem when not just you and I, but so many people we could mention, I'm not going to you know, start to list them because then I'm going to leave out too many people. Right. Um, but on the one hand, it was a lot of people. On the other hand, it was possible to get all of us in a room together to try to plan things out. So it wasn't that many people um, who recognized that this was a critical issue. And, you know, when we started this, just for everybody else, the popular conception was either why the hell do I need it? Um, I always like to tell the story of when I first started in, in 1999 uh, and I was talking to a reporter and he said, well, why do we care about this broadband, which was 200 kilobytes per second uh, at the time? I have a 56 kbps modem. It does everything I need. Why would I care about this? And trying to explain that to people is hard. The other element of this was, well, but we're going to have libraries and, you know, we, we've got this E-rate program that's going to make this available in schools and libraries. And why do you need to worry about this at home when, you know, you, you, you have access to it somewhere. You can check your email at the library. You know, what else are you going to need? It took so much to change the thinking on this, including the thinking at agencies and among members of Congress who were sympathetic. Uh, but first of all, a lot of them were very seriously like, yeah, that's important. But, you know, we got people who, you know, don't have clean water. We got people who don't have uh, uh, enough to eat. Why should I care about your problem? And on the one hand, I understand that. But trying to explain, but this is part of that. This is going to help you solve that problem and not in obvious ways, but because if they don't have this access, they are not going to have the tools um, that they need. They're not going to be able to participate in society in a way that is important. I, you know, I wouldn't want right. to say more important than clean water, but certainly, you know, critically important in the same way that access to electricity, access to clean water are important. And. Yeah, you know, that was a tremendous shift and it took years and it took people being laughed at for saying Internet is a human right or broadband is a utility. Now, it's also the case, I have to say, that some things actually resonate with people more than the conventional, certainly conventional in the Beltway wisdom understands. I was saying to people for a very long time, no, no, no. Public utility is only a bad word inside the beltway. When you go outside and talk to normal people, you know, they're like, well, yeah, I understand about electricity. I understand about the telephone. These are, are things that I need. And, you know, if they were on board with the broadband is important. They were like, of course, it was a utility. Mm -hmm. you know? And there was a culture change that we had to have within the advocacy community, within the, the, the D.C. community for people to understand that 
the world had changed since 1999. You know, that there was in 2010 and 2015, you know, there was a much greater willingness outside of Washington, D.C. to accept that there was a role for government to play in making sure that people had access to broadband because broadband was a public utility, a thing that everybody needs in order to participate. Now, it's never 100 percent. I can you know, find plenty of people today um, that are going to tell me that, no, no, broadband you don't need that in the home or mm-hmm. broadband, you know, is not a public utility. That's just crazy talk. You know. But we have had a culture change as evidenced by the fact that you have Congress spending $45 billion to invest in building this out and that people who run for the state house or for Congress campaign on bringing broadband to these unserved and underserved areas and making it affordable for people who couldn't afford it. Now, it's also the case that we had a huge external event that helped. Yes. COVID came along. Right. I mean, I think you remember as well from 2015 on, I regularly heard people saying, you know, we used to think it was a nicety and now it's definitely a utility and it's essential. And then and then in, in, during the pandemic, they said, well, now it's definitely the case. And I think, you know, for, I think right. the culture change did happen before the pandemic. And then that was just another nail in the um, right. the finishing product. Let's say we wouldn't have had the critical mass that we needed during the covid uh, pandemic to think about things like we're going to take all of our classes online if we had not had a certain critical mass going into this. In fact, mm-hmm. a lot of people you know, this is the problem of broadband and the need for broadband had become sufficiently uh, clear to a lot of people that it was a shock to them that in their community, they might have 20 or 30 percent of people who couldn't afford broadband in the home. Right. Here in the D.C. metro area have a lot of affluent suburbs. And it was a huge shock for people like, wait, wait a minute. You know, there are 20 or 30 percent of the kids uh, um, in the class, you know, don't have affordable, reliable broadband at home, so they can't just, you know, tune into uh, uh, the online classes. Never mind the discovery that there were areas in the country where, you know, they don't have this option of of going online. So they have to leave their home to do it. Right. So, yeah. Well, let's let's go in a specific direction of one that I feel like I do hear some people talking about. And I think we're going to hear more people saying, which is a sense of we blew it. We we didn't do a good enough job. Philanthropy is moving on to other hot topics now that the pandemic is kind of moving on. The federal government's put a bunch of money into it. A lot of that money is going uh, to projects like AT&T and Comcast, which uh, are better than having nothing. But I think is not our vision of the kind of successes we would like to see. And if we had culture change and um, and so like we blew it and oh, no, like why? What am I going to do with my life? Kind of. It's easy to feel that way. And Lord knows you will always have plenty of people who are there to tell you that. I mean, first of all, there's never a shortage of people to tell you that it's impossible. Right. One of my aphorisms is uh, before it happens, it will be impossible. After it happens, it will have been inevitable Right. Um, because people don't like to think that you can make a difference. But at the same time that we're seeing many things happening that are not happening in the way that we wanted to see them happen. We're seeing a lot of projects that are happening in the way um, that we would like to see them happen. We are seeing communities where they're getting connectivity, where it's not just 
you know, the usual uh, suspects, uh, you know, keeping 90 percent for themselves and, you know, giving, you know, basically building out 10 percent uh, uh, to everybody else or where, you know, we're dependent on corporate charity. Uh, and uh, you're supposed to be grateful that Comcast is, uh, you know, having a particular, you know, this highly restrictive program before ACP, before the current um you know, government funded subsidy when it was the Comcast essentials. And, you know, they made a big deal about how they were rolling it out, but that it was very hard for people to enroll. So there's a lot of failures. There's a lot of successes. And we have to celebrate our successes when we get them. I also say, you know, one of the things I say a lot is, you know, is cultivate functional delusions because they're absolutely necessary. Um, it's a peculiar mindset, and we have to believe that what we're capable of doing is making the culture shift. Maybe it will not be fully the culture shift that we want, but the two things I hate that I see a lot of are, number one, this idea that you can't make a difference, uh, but number two, the idea that you only make these differences in little ways, you know, look, I helped a single person. Look, I, I managed this one little thing, but it, no, we are forcing the bigger companies to do better because however much they are kicking and screaming and not delivering, you know, the fact is that we've gone from programs that delivered inadequate broadband to a handful of people to programs that are now delivering, I don't know, like 50 megabits uh, down. Is that what uh, some of these programs that have the government? I think it might be 100 in many cases now. Right. So, yeah, it's true. And and this is also where I need to keep in mind something like, look, I don't need Comcast to lose for me to win. Right. I, I fully I think that's so important for people to hear. The fact that, yeah, Comcast are getting 30 bucks a month to deliver a service to people who otherwise couldn't afford connectivity and it's a strong and reliable service. And yeah, would I like it better if it were some scrappy startup or community-based uh, um, program rather than a big company? But you know what? I don't care. They're delivering it. It's affordable. They're making a decent profit for delivering a good service, which is what I actually want. I mean, this is kind of, again, one of the biggest problems we have in our profession is people personalize this stuff. And they're like, ooh, that greedy Comcast. Ooh, that greedy AT&T. Um, I'm like, oh, no. You know, if I can align the corporate incentive with the public interest, great. That's what I want to see. And, you know, for Comcast to be getting 30 bucks a month for a service um, that actually delivers the goods to people who need it, all praise to Comcast then. Good on them. Right. I think additionally, we have to be realistic about what we can do. We're building on a small base, which I think is expanding wonderfully. And we have a lot of great people doing good work. Comcast can connect a million people next year with internet essentials. Municipal networks cannot spring up and be built. If if instead of, of Biden in the Rose Garden celebrating the biggest ISPs for their you know, commitments uh, for supporting the ACP program with faster programs, 
if instead he had said, you know what, we're going to, we're just going to give like way more money than anyone expected to municipal networks. Well, as of right now, not a single person would be connected because it takes a while to spin those up. And so this isn't the end of time. Comcast and the big companies can do a lot in the short term and we need them right now while we try to build up alternatives that we think will be better over the next five, 10, 50, a hundred years. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a lot to this, which is Another one of the things they say is I have to entertain the possibility that I am wrong. I think municipal networks are a great idea. I do have to entertain the possibility that maybe they're not the solution for everybody. Right. I, I think agree. co-ops are a great idea. I have to entertain the possibility that they're not necessarily the solution for everybody. In talking about the various religions of economics here, I refer to myself as being a member of the the congregation of the progressive capitalist first reformed church, um, which is like, yeah, I, I'm I'm all for, you know, capitalism, but in a way that recognizes the incentives, not, you know, worshiping the 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 golden calf of the market here um and treating government intervention as something that if you use it at all i say say the problem is you got this was true of democrats for a very long time still is to some degree folks who who treat this like government intervention like chemotherapy it's this dangerous poisonous thing <laughs> that you only use you know in this desperate circumstance to treat this terrible i'm like no it's 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 like anything else you know the good thing about Profit maximizing firms and capitalist markets is you know how they're going to behave. They want to maximize profit. So our job in public policy is to make sure that that incentive aligns with what we want to see happen. Sometimes it's through carrots like subsidies. Sometimes it's through sticks like, you know, fines and and you know, regulations that uh, require companies to invest um, in networks where they wouldn't want to invest or for things that they don't want to spend the money on, like resiliency. Um, but they're all tools. You know, it's all about getting to the goal, not about punishing, you know, companies or, you know, avoiding government intervention where either one of those is necessary. And one of the things that you were just talking about was uncertainty. And I feel like I harp on that with my staff frequently. And I feel like this is where um, there's a quote that I love, which is uh, when all hope is lost, there's nothing left to worry about, <laughs> uh, which is, is indeed dark, but nonetheless, like uncertainty is where, is where I live of not really knowing, you know, like I don't know exactly what work will do that will make the difference, but I've seen that we've done it in the past and I have a sense of, what will help in the future. Um, and I, and I, I'd sent you some quotes as we were preparing from this. I wanted to encourage people. I feel like people who this conversation is resonating with would probably enjoy reading uh, Rebecca Solnit, particularly uh, hope in a dark place. Uh, but her book, uh, paradise built in hell, which was uh, one that Corey Doctorow put on my radar. Um, I highly recommend as well. Um, and then one other one is just you were just mentioning that your religion of the the first church of the reformed of capitalism reformed progressive or, capitalism reformed yes yes um, that I, just Mariana Mazzucato is my favorite preacher of that church uh, I would I think I would put her into that camp um, who talks a lot about how to marry government and market incentives in ways that will be much more beneficial than we've done currently um, but one of the things that I want to put back to you is. You specifically have talked about um, martyrdom, and I feel like that's really important because 
Twitter is one of these places where, man, you can get a lot more followers by just talking about how awful everything is and how nothing can change. You sort of touched on that earlier, but I want to talk a little bit more about that. I often say that martyrdom is the worst trap for public policy advocates. And by martyrdom, I don't mean genuinely being willing to die for a cause, genuinely willing to sacrifice for a cause when that accomplishes something. There are a lot of, you know, we were talking before we started recording here about the the people who are dying in Iran to uh, uh, protest for freedom. That's inspirational martyrdom. That's that's what I'm talking about is when people come to see failure as inevitable, but instead of becoming like disengaged cynics, they become committed to fighting battles that they're going to lose for no good reason. And after a while, that becomes addictive. You expect to lose, but you are fighting. Um, and, you know, the fact that you lose actually helps to confirm that all of the other losses were not your fault and you didn't have anything to uh, uh, to learn from them. Losses are going to happen. But you got to believe that you can get up and win and that you can learn from those losses and that, you know, you can decide sometimes I can't fight this battle. It doesn't advance the cause. Um, it's always uh, for me, you know, I think back to uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, who uh, was before he was a Supreme Court justice, developed the uh, NAACP's. Uh, strategy for abolishing separate but equal, keeping in mind that when he did this in 1945 after World War II, getting out there and saying, we're going to get rid of separate but equal was a crazy thing to say. And a dangerous thing to say, not just for him personally, but also anyone who's listening to him. Right. You're taking other people's lives into your hands and encouraging them to do things that could end their lives or permanently, you know, injure them. And he mapped out a legal strategy that did not start by directly challenging separate but equal, which was settled law. It started out by challenging schools and others who were clearly not equal and saying, you're required under the law to invest in this school, to pay to have these, you know, African-Americans who want to be doctors go to a medical school because you're not providing a Negro medical school, uh, you know, in your state. All of these things that pushed the boundaries forward and pushed the boundaries forward till finally, not only had he forced millions of people to see that separate was inherently unequal, but he had established a record where even those who were trying to defend the system were saying, well, but we, we can't possibly uh, uh, provide these you know, schools for black children that will be the same as the schools for white children. That will be so expensive. And that was where we don't look at it, but it was a multi-day argument in front of the Supreme Court. And, you know, and it was a 5-4 decision. But the, the fact was they worked it in the face of all opposition, in the face of threats, you know, and they worked it within the system when everybody was going to tell them that it was impossible to work it through the system. And I sometimes imagine the choices that he and his team had to make over which cases they were going to take and which ones they weren't going to take, knowing that the ones that they didn't take were condemning those people to an unjust and unequal system. But 
recognizing that if they took the wrong cases, they were condemning everybody. And that's where I think it's worth reminding what we were just talking about, the martyrdom. It would have been easy to say this system sucks. It's unfair and we're never going to win. And, you know, as opposed to taking on that weight of determining which which people were going to suffer longer, depending on which cases you're you're taking on. It's exactly it would have been easy to bring the cases that weren't going to win at the time because those were the people who were suffering and, you know, knowing you were going to lose, but deciding like, I want to fight for these people. I want to be fighting, you know, like with my fists and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, challenging the injustice, but not in a way that's actually going to win. And that will confirm the cruelty and injustice of the world. And, you know, instead of saying, I'm going to make a lot of hard choices, I'm going to make a lot of calls, you know, and, and with the added burden of, and you don't know, how it's going to turn out. It could have turned out differently. As I said, it was a 5-4 decision at this. We we forget now, you know, again, before it happens, it'll be impossible. After it happens, it'll be inevitable. You know, we get this story, you know, to the extent that they studied it all in school. Rosa Parks, you know, didn't give up her seat. And then Martin Luther King happened and suddenly we're in a post-racial society. Um, And ain't it great? And it's like, oh, no. And it's not as if, Winning Brown versus Board of Education suddenly solved all the problems. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is there'll be a lot of people out there say, oh, yeah, so great. So they won that. That was great for a day. The next day, schools were still we have, you know, problems in our school systems with, you know, schools that are essentially desegregated, you know, segregated to this day. Um, and, yeah, it's true. But it was so much worse. Right. And I think to as we draw this to a close just because of time i mean yeah. this is something we could you and i are both very interested in discussing yeah, i recently learned forever, something yeah. i did i did not know which was after the legal victories with the the lunch counter desegregation um the demonstrators and i think this was snick um would call the restaurant the next day and say we're planning on coming in tomorrow you are legally required now to serve us we want to know what time will work for you and, and they would try to cooperate with the business owners that had been beating them just perhaps days or weeks before and saying, you know, we know that to live together, we want to put that behind us and work with you proactively rather than dancing and celebrating and spiking the football that we want. Right. As you know, I've got a couple of things I say here, which is number one, always um, make it as easy as possible for people to do what you want to do. The objective wasn't just to win a case. The objective was to make a world in which, you know, you could walk into those restaurants as a black person and, you know, actually be served as a customer. Um, And so, yeah, that meant we want to make it easy for you to do that. We want to make it, you know, we want to coordinate with you, get get into the habit of this. The other is when somebody does what you want, you say thank you. You don't rub their noses in the fact that they lost. You don't ask them what took so long. No matter how frustrated and angry you may feel about that personally, part of making it easier for somebody to do what you want is to once they give in, you say thank you. Yeah. And we're glad to be moving on. Doesn't mean you have to uh, treat them like a hero or anything, but you shouldn't make them feel bad for giving you what you want. Right. This is a perfect segue, I think, because. 
I did not expect, um, and I, I asked if we would talk about the yeah. tribal priority window. I did not expect that, in my understanding of it, you could correct me, is that this very much came down to Ajit Pai deciding to do it. Someone yeah. who I've disagreed with on most issues, someone who you know, I feel a lot of anger toward on a variety of things. And, and I've always tried to just remind people he, he did without him. It's not clear that we would have had the tribal priority window Um, in that, you know, he pushed it across the finish line Um, just briefly. The tribal priority window for people who aren't familiar with it is the idea that when some spectrum comes up for uh, being auctioned off release uh, areas that are under tribal territories would become first available to them without um, at no cost. And uh, they would be able to take advantage of that. Uh, this is something that was advanced for decades, I think. Um, you know, people like about you, a decade, um, about a decade, because we um, didn't have the wireless networks. Um, maybe more like fifteen years, but yeah, yeah. I mean, because first we needed the technology to do it. And then, I mean, I would have said that if I if I went back in time fifteen years ago and I said we're going to do this thing and we're going to have four hundred tribes applying or like and three more than three hundred tribes getting getting uh, approved on this. I feel like you'd be like, really? What? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about something that has really helped to move the needle. Yeah. Um, and, that, and this, I think, plays into something like the uncertainty back in the day. We knew that this would be a good idea, but mm. this is so big. And I just I, I wonder if you can just reflect a little bit on the early years of that and, and anything that you think about that. First and most important was this was something that a number of innovators on tribal land did. Um, so important lesson, it came up from within the community. Now, that doesn't mean that there was any kind of uniformity about it at all. Um, well, I'll mention Jeff uh, Blackwell and uh, Matt Rantanen as two major uh, uh, names and innovators in this. Yeah, well, and, and my organization, Public Knowledge, gave them an award for this two years ago. So Jeff was a lawyer at the FCC and who became the 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 first head of their office of tribal native american uh, uh, affairs um and matt started out as somebody who was saying that hey you know we can take this new wi-fi stuff and use it in an innovative way to bring basic connectivity to the reservation where he lived um and you know they went they proselytized around this stuff they worked in coalition with others um, and not just folks who were interested in tribal, you know, also rural broadband. It came to a hook for Pi, which is we start with, you know, Agit Pi had initially been not uh, somebody who you would have thought of as an ally on this. In fact, you know, previously he had made some changes to uh, the funding for the Universal Service Fund program that had been quite harmful to uh, tribes in the way, you know, tribes were were getting their connectivity. So it's not like he started as somebody you know, who was a big tribal ally. And this is, again, kind of an example of you find what people want. And he was interested in, number one, showing that he was doing stuff on closing the rural digital divide. Uh, and number two, the window was in a particular band of spectrum. Um where he was taking stuff that had been reserved for non-commercial organizations um, and shifting that over to commercial use to provide more um, spectrum for 5G, um, the 2.5 gigahertz band for those who are, are familiar with this. The Democrats who were in the minority at the time had pressed to include in the notice of proposed rulemaking 
before we do that, should we have a window for non-commercial organizations and for um, Indian tribes? For all non-commercial educational organizations or non-commercial organizations was too far a stretch. The folks and the tribes made a strong case of this is something that you can do. It is consistent with your goals. It is not going to deprive the private sector wireless companies of the spectrum that they want, since the whole point of the exercise from Pi's point of view was to get more spectrum to the private companies that he saw as being the primary way to get 5G out. And he became persuaded um, that this would be something that was feasible, that fit within his goals. It's cynical to say that this was all about just making him look good and Part of my answer is, yeah, it is about making you look good. That's an incentive when you're running uh, uh, the FCC. And the fact that you had not only Democrats, but Republican senators from uh, rural states with large uh, Native American populations, you know, folks from Alaska, a number of other uh, states who were saying, yeah, you ought to do this. And he was like, OK, let's do this. Let's see if it works. Uh, and that was you know, all credit to him. And then when it was clear that because of COVID, a lot of tribes were not going to be able to finish on time. A number of us were lobbying very hard for an extension of the deadline. We did not get the extension that we wanted. So that was disappointing. But we got an extension that allowed something like 400 tribes to apply for this window. And not only did that do something incredible for the tribes in question to give them access to the one thing that you can't build on your own or because this is the thing when you're trying to set up a wireless network, you can, you know, you've, you've run a boot camp, you know, that helps folks figure out how to buy the equipment, set up the equipment, make the network happen. But unless you have access to the spectrum, it doesn't do you any good. This was a way to get what they needed game changing for the tribes that are able to take advantage of this and game changing politically, because now we're pushing this shouldn't be a one-time thing. Anytime you do these uh, spectrum auctions, you ought to be able to have a tribal window first. And now we can talk about it in terms of tribal sovereignty and how that's important. If you just started with the tribal sovereignty point and just made the argument, this is a tribal sovereignty issue, that would not have helped. But saying this is going to help you on your goal of closing the rural digital divide, because this is the least connected rural uh, folks. Oh, and by the way, it's, it's also good under the federal uh, trust relationship with the tribes and tribal sovereignty, but you don't care about that. That's what got us in the door. And now we have a much more vibrant conversation. We have you know, a letter from uh, the Senate to the FCC talking about how uh, they ought to do this you know, and establish this as policy. We have folks uh, uh, looking at this and, you know, looking at additional things that would uh, enable, you know, tribes to self-provision and recognize greater tribal sovereignty over communication. We don't know where it'll go. It's done good already. And hopefully we may be sitting here 10 years from now where everybody's like, well, of course, tribes have sovereignty over the the spectrum on, on tribal lands. It's crazy to think that they wouldn't. Or we might be sitting here where the 2.5 was just a one-time deal and tribes are making do with what they have. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you you get some benefit of hindsight. And I think sometimes we um, we do have that problem of viewing it as inevitable rather than recognizing all the ways in which 
things uh, that were happenstance may have resulted in the results, but it is not easy to imagine what would have taken to convince uh, Ajit Pai that um, we should just have all spectrum returned to tribes. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you argument. know that if we come in saying tribal sovereignty, the FCC ought to have a declaration. I mean, we couldn't get Democrats to do that. You know, it's right. Uh, because I mean, and it is it's I, I, I there's areas where I sympathize. And this is putting yourself yourself in the their shoes is that, you know, they don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. We thought we would have a sense of what would happen. Um, and and I think we're still learning and calibrating on that. But I think, you know, even though I want to go to a world where there's a lot more municipal networks, and I would agree that not everyone should do that, um, I would not say that tomorrow every city should start building one, right? Like a, right. making a big risky investment. Like there's something to be said for towing the water in a number of cases. Not always, yeah. but a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, we tried this in 2004 with the Muni wireless networks, and we had a lot of hopes for that technology. And that technology was not ready. You know, mesh networks, which are an important technology, and, and you know, they've been developing and we have them, but, you know, our hope at the time that they were going to be wildly transformative and we were going to be able to set this up turned out the technology wasn't there yet and that happens sometimes which is why again at any stage with any of the things that succeeded it would have been very easy to say this is going to go nowhere why do you think you know this is going to happen i do have one story that i want to share this had to do with low power radio back um in 2004 and um, people who are, are familiar with the low power FM service, that was after about 10 years of non-commercial folks lobbied successfully for the FCC to create this service. And then National Association of Broadcasters went into Congress, got it significantly trimmed. And there had been in 2003 what they called the Great Translator Invasion, which was uh, applications for translator services that had threatened to wipe out um, and take up all of the space that could be used for low power FM. And there hadn't been a, a second low power FM window. You know, we'd had the first one in like 2000. Michael Powell, who was chair of the FCC at the time, because of blowback from his uh, effort to eliminate the ownership rules, wanted to show that he was, you know, interested in localism. Uh, so low power FM, he had a you know, rulemaking um, at uh, that he was circulating. Um, for approval um, that would address the translator issue um, and set up a number of improvements that the LPFM folks wanted and would, would you know, get us on track to schedule another window. The problem was Michael Powell was leaving the FCC and Kevin Martin was scheduled to take over. And everybody knew that Kevin Martin was good buddies with the National Association of Broadcasters. And therefore, everybody knew that Kevin Martin wasn't going to vote for this item. Um, and, you know, it was just pointless. So why work on it? I went to each one of the of the offices and said, look, you vote the item. You know, you don't be the one who killed it. I will get Kevin Martin's vote. Now, I had no idea at the time how I was going to do that, but. You know, I was like, don't you be the one who makes this fail because it's not voted out before Michael Powell leaves. I had worked a little bit with Kevin Martin on a couple of things, so I had some ideas. I knew that he cared a lot about due process, which is, again, kind of another thing was having met him and talked to him. I believe that he was genuinely sincere about a number of things that he 
said he cared about, like due process, um, whereas everybody knew that that was just baloney and blah, blah, blah. So I was working with Gloria Tristani at the time, former commissioner who had known um, Kevin Martin back uh, in the day before he was a commissioner um, and he was uh, you know, working at the FCC. He agreed to take a meeting with us. You know, this was Thursday and Michael Powell was going to leave that night at midnight. Scheduled the meeting for Thursday morning, kept getting pushed off, kept getting pushed off, kept getting pushed off. We were sitting there waiting. Finally, at about four in the afternoon, Kevin Martin walks in. He's got his cell phone that is constantly ringing and he's constantly pushing his little red button there. And he just looks up at me and says, this is the White House on the phone. I know why you're here. I will vote the item. I will not have it said that I killed this on a pocket veto. Now, if for any reason the item does not get out the door before Powell leaves, this is not a commitment to recirculate. This is not. I'm just going to do this because I believe in the due process stuff and I'm not going to kill this through a procedural trick. Now, do we have anything else to talk about? And I said, no, thank you. And left. Important lessons here. One, actually consider that people might mean what they say. Two, actually take the chance. Don't give up. You know, what would be the worst thing that would have happened? He might have said, no, I'm not going to meet with you. I'm not going to vote with it. So then, you know, what would have happened? I would have looked bad to a couple of folks, but, you know, we would have tried. Three, when you get what you want, say thank you, shut up and leave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's wonderful as long as you have that temperament and yep. um, and it's, it's something you have to cultivate, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, it does. If you're going to be an advocate and you're going to be an activist, that means you're probably already a passionate person who cares deeply about this stuff. So you do have to cultivate that. I'm not here to feel good. I'm here to be effective. And right. this is what's going to be effective. Thank you so much, Harold. This has been a really fun conversation. And uh, and I hope it's helpful because I think it is difficult to feel like you can win everything and then like you're losing if you win some of it. And I feel like we have won quite a bit and we need to keep working at it. Yeah. And I'll say, look, it's no secret we have an election coming up. It's no secret that Republicans are now predicted to win and to win bigly. Um, so it's very easy uh, for those of us who looked at four years of not getting infrastructure out and then noting that it was the Democrats who who got the 45 billion out to to feel a good deal of despair uh, about you know what the future may hold. But and I'm not going to pretend that because we believe in because we really want it, that means we'll win. But you got to believe that we can continue to find ways to make a difference. And in similar situations, we have found ways to make a difference. You know, and one final thing I'll end with, which is if you can't do what you want, do what you can. Absolutely. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, 
please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.